Our sermon this morning is from Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 25. So turn there in your Bibles if you have them, or grab a pew Bible from the seat in front of you, um, or grab a bulletin. The, the, the text is listed in the bulletin as well. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find Romans chapter 8 on page 888. So go ahead and turn there, and we're going to look together at suffering. And how we as Christians can account for suffering in the world and in our lives and how we as Christians can persevere through suffering in our lives. If you'll you'll remember back to last week in Romans 8 verses 12 to 17, right, we saw quite a bit, right, we saw that... um, you know, that, that we are, while we're slaves to God in the sense that we're indebted to him because of his, his grace and having given us a new nature, that we are not merely slaves to God in the sense that we have a slave-master relationship and that's the extent of it, nor are we uh, orphans um, who, who don't have, uh, you know, parents that love us and, and care for us, but, but rather the most, the most um, you know, pointedly true Thing about a Christian with regards to his relationship to God is that he's a child of God. The Holy Spirit lives inside of us, and one of the Holy Spirit's primary jobs is to testify and confirm to our spirit inside of us that we are, in fact, children of God and that we do have a Father in heaven who loves us. The Holy Spirit gives us assurance, whispers to us, you're not a slave, you're not an orphan, you're a child, you're a, you're a child of God, you're an heir of God, you're a co-heir of God with Jesus himself. So, so hang in there. One day you'll stand before God and he will scoop you up into his arms and love you and welcome you into his presence forever. The Holy Spirit dwells in you and spends a significant amount of his time testifying to your soul in that uh, capacity. And then, verse 17, there's this tricky little verse, because all of that is really encouraging. It's great news, right? That, that, the, that I'm a child of God, and that the Holy Spirit's job is to testify to me that I am a child of God. Totally on board with all of that. And then verse 17, where we ended, it says, uh, you're a child of God, an heir of God, a co-heir with Christ, provided that we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. And so that, you know, that last clause of that last verse in that passage kind of changes the mood of the whole passage. And, um, and, and, and that, that clause, right, provided that we suffer with him so that we can also be glorified with him, is essentially an outline for the passage today. Verses eight, verses 18 through 25 are basically an outworking of and an expansion of and an explanation of that last clause in verse 17, which is that Christians are called to suffer with God so that they can be glorified with, with God. And so we're going to talk this morning about suffering and, and glory. So I'm going to read, starting in verse 18, we're just going to read the passage all the way through and then we're going to pray and, uh, and, and get to work. It says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, 
but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait for as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, then we wait for it with patience. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the, the gift of your word. We thank you for the privilege that it is to be able to read your word in our heart language. We thank you for the privilege that it is to gather together as a church family and listen to your word and sit under the authority of your word as we consider it together. Lord, we pray that you would speak to our hearts this morning through the reading and the hearing and and the meditation uh, on your word. We pray that it would work mightily in and through us, right? Through through each each of us individually and through all of us uh, corporately. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, so here's the big question that we are going to consider and think about as we read this text together. It's a, it's a question that was leveled at Paul in the first century. It's a question that was leveled at believers in the Old Testament, prophets and priests. question that was leveled at you know, countless Christians in the New Testament alongside Paul. It was, it was you know, given to church fathers in the early church, philosophers and theologians throughout uh, church history, reformers, Calvin, Luther, Puritans, evangelicals, pastors, Bible teachers, missionaries. Right, right. I imagine it's a question that many of you in this room have, have heard or it's been, it's been uh, leveled to you, that the question of suffering and the question of evil, the problem of evil or the problem of, of suffering. And the question or the problem goes something like this, right? Uh, God is, by definition, omnipotent and sovereign. He can do whatever he wants. There's nothing that God is incapable of doing. And God is perfectly good and righteous and loving, right? That, that he wants good for the people that he loves. He doesn't want them to suffer. So, so God is sovereign, meaning that he can prevent evil and suffering and pain in this world. And God is good, meaning that theoretically he should will and desire to prevent evil and suffering and pain in this world. But suffering exists. Evil exists. Pain exists. These are undeniable realities. And so therefore, God must not exist. God cannot exist. If, if God were omnipotent, then he 
uh, could prevent suffering. If God were good, then he would prevent suffering. But suffering exists, so either God doesn't exist, or if he does, then he can't be omnipotent, which means that he's uh, weak and, and not strong and powerful, which is what uh, God must be. Or he's bad, he's mean, he's malevolent. The only way that we can account for suffering in the world is by saying that either God is weak or that God is evil, which is another way of saying that God is not God. The existence of suffering proves that God does not exist. People people wrestled with that question throughout the Old Testament. They wrote uh, entire chapters, entire books on that question. People wrestle with that question in the New Testament. They wrestle with it in church history. Again, I imagine that many of you have heard it. You've probably had unbelieving friends or family members, uh, you know, ask it to you. You've probably discussed it and wrestled with it yourselves. And so what we want to consider is not just how do we as Christians answer that question of how can a good God exist with all the suffering and evil in the world, because there are a lot of, like, you can go on Amazon, there's countless books that have been written on it. There are a bajillion answers to that question of how can a good God exist when, when there's evil in the world. Some are better than others, and some are more biblical than others, but there's a lot of answers to that, that question. So we're not going to necessarily like tackle that question in its theoretical, you know, philosophical sense per se this morning, but what I want us to do is look at what Paul says about that question. Look at, look at uh, how exactly Paul addresses and speaks into that question here in this, this passage. And the way that he does it is by taking a step back a little bit, right? Instead of saying, let's talk about suffering and let's try to account for suffering and let's try to figure out how God can exist given the reality that suffering exists from here, from our little vantage point inside of suffering, where we are suffering. Instead of So Paul says, instead of talking about how can we account for suffering from there, let's step back and look at a, a broader more panoramic view of human history and uh, the timeline of eternity and consider from that vantage point. So we're not at the mercy of our perspective where all we see is suffering. We can, we're going to step back and look at all of, of human history and look at both the suffering of this current life, but also all of eternity and, and what, is, what is in store for believers who trust in Jesus after this, this life. So that's kind of what Paul wants to do here in verses 18 through, through 25, is look not just at suffering, but suffering as it relates to eternity. He says, if you want to talk about suffering, uh, let's talk about not just suffering, but all, all of our, our eternal existence. He starts by saying, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory of that is to be revealed to us. So, how can we how can we account for suffering? How can we reconcile the reality of suffering with the reality that God exists and that he is good and that he is sovereign by recognizing that suffering is not the end. Suffering does not get the last word. Suffering is real and it exists and it's true of us, but it's not 
It's not the final word on the matter. God gets the last word. And God is going to reveal His glory to us on His terms in His perfect timing. So, if the suffering of this present time was all that there is, then... Then yeah, then then that the the question, the problem of suffering and evil uh, is is probably too difficult to answer. If if all that there is is this life and nothing else, and this life is marked by pain and unimaginable suffering, then it seems reasonable to conclude that a God who is both sovereign and good does not exist. But Paul's saying the suffering of this present time is not all that there is. The suffering of this present time is going to give way to an eternal glory that is far bigger and far weightier and far more significant than the sufferings of this present time. So much so that it's, it's not even worth comparing the two things together. If I, if I had a dollar and you had five dollars, you have more money than me, but at least it's worth comparing, right? Like, it's a factor of five, it's 20%, you know, you can... I don't know, whatever. Like, those, it's, it's different, but they're worth if I had If I had a dollar, you have a hundred dollars. Same thing. Uh, it's, it's, you have more money than me, but at least it's worth comparing, right? Like, we can, we can conceptualize how those two interact with each other. One's bigger, one's smaller, but one can be divided by the other one. One can be multiplied to equal the other one, that, that kind of thing. Let's say I have a dollar, and you have all of the rest of the money in the world. Which, according to Google is between 50 trillion and 500 trillion dollars. Now, I don't know how there can be that much of a margin of error. Well, I, I, it, it partly has to do with how you define the word money. That's quite a rabbit hole that I went down this week. Is what is the definition of the word money? So if you want to talk about that, come find me afterwards. But Let's say I have a dollar and you have $100 trillion. The difference there is so vast and so massive that our brains can't even comprehend the difference, how those two numbers interact with each other. Those two figures are not worth comparing to where you could add a few thousand dollars to my stack and it would still be not worth comparing to your stack of a hundred, you could add a few million dollars to my and it would be not worth comparing with your stack of 100 trillion dollars. And so, so th- those figures are not worth comparing. Paul's saying the suffering that we experience in our lives here in this world is not even worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us in eternity. The glory that will be revealed to us, which is the glory of God himself. The the glory of the unmediated presence of God. Right? The same thing that was experienced in the in, in the inner, the most holy place, the holy of holies inside the, the sanctuary, inside the tabernacle, inside the temple, right? This unmediated glory of God that's so blindingly glorious that it will kill a man if he walks into it. That glory will be experienced by those who trust in Jesus 
in an, in an unmediated fashion for all of eternity. Paul is saying, the glory that will be revealed to you is so it's incomprehensible how big and how great and how glorious it is. So much so that it's not even worth comparing with the suffering that you experience in this present life. So verse 18 is not a referendum on the smallness or the insignificance of your suffering. Paul's not looking people in the eye and saying, your suffering is not really that bad, so just, you know, uh, just, just get over it and move past it, right? right? In fact, Paul's going to spend the rest of this passage um, dignifying and, and affirming the reality that suffering is real and it's intense and it's significant. So verse 18 is not a referendum on the smallness or the insignificance of our current suffering. Rather, it is, it, it is, a, it is speaking to how big and glorious and incomparable and inconceivable the glory of God is. Our future glory will be. And understanding that reality, embracing that reality, is going to go a long way in helping us understand and account for and, and be able to persevere through suffering in this life. The, the incredible, incomparable, inconceivable glory of God. I would submit to you that the meaning of life, the entire purpose for your existence, is for you to see and, and recognize and behold and, and stand in awe of the, the bigness and the glory of, of God. My whole jo- the whole point of my job is to help you see and behold and stand in awe of the the bigness and the weightiness of the glory of God. My job is not to run a non one c three organization. It's not to plan weekly services. It's not to you know come up with sermons that are fun or engaging, right? My, my job, as I understand it, is to, is to prepare you for death and to help you to, to recognize and see and behold the, the incomparable, inconceivable glory of the God who created you. And then, by comparison, like as we see, as we start to expand our vision for how big and how glorious God is, then by comparison, the sufferings of this life and this world seem small. They didn't get any smaller. They don't, it's not less, our suffering is no less acute, it's no less painful, it's no less difficult, but it seems and it feels smaller in comparison to standing next to the incomparable glory of God. Paul is saying that God is more good. The glory of God is more good than your current suffering is bad. And it's not even close. So 
So having established that, that the glory of God is infinitely greater than the suffering that we're currently experiencing, Paul says, all right, well then let's, let's stop and let's take a look. Let's just stare for a moment at the suffering that we are currently experiencing. Let's consider it. Let's talk about it. Let's, let's feel it. And let's, let's consider it compared to and in, in contrasting with the glory that will be revealed to us. So verses 19 through uh, 22, 23. 19 to 22. Uh, he's going to talk about suffering um, in, in a general sense for all of creation. And then in verse 23 to 25, he kind of shifts, and he's going to talk more about suffering in a particular sense for human beings, for Christians, for people who trust in Jesus. So suffering in general, all of creation, suffering in particular, Christians who trust in Christ. In verse 19, he says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. It's not just us here in this room that are are suffering, right? We'll circle back to the us-ness of it in verse 23. But it's not just us, it's all of creation, right? The, The sin of humanity of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden did not just invite suffering and death into our own experience exclusively. It brought suffering and death into the entire created order. So now all of creation is is suffering. All of creation is waiting for something to happen to right, uh, sky and water and land and trees and plants and animals. All of it is is hurting and broken and waiting and hoping for a future moment of redemption. It's not just that we human beings are waiting for the day when God will save us from our sin, though we are. It's that the world itself is waiting and longing for the moment when it will be redeemed and restored. The the state of the world that we are living in right now is not the state of the world that we will inhabit for all of eternity. Nor is it the state of the world that God created uh, originally. Verse 20, right? The, the, the creation was subjected to futility. So when God created the world, it was not at that moment subjected to this futility, but then it was at, at a subsequent point, right? The, the God created the world perfect with his original intention for it to glorify him and testify to his greatness and his glory. But then because of sin, the world was subjected to futility. God creates the world. God puts mankind in the world. God then uh, tasks and and enables humanity. God says, "This world is yours. This world, like I made this for you. Rule over it. Live in it. Enjoy it. Have a ball. You can do any. Like you, the, the whole world is your playground. You can eat anything you want." There's one tiny little exception, a few square feet right here. Don't eat from this tree. And it was almost like a subtle little reminder, right? That like, you 
humanity, you are my vice regent. I have uh, invited you to rule over my creation on my behalf. I'm the king of it, but I'm inviting you to rule over it as the, the person sent the ambassador from the king. You are effectively the king of the world. But you're not the king. Like you, there is, you, as much authority as you have over all of the world, and you have almost un, uninhibited authority over the world, you don't have total, complete authority, total, complete autonomy. You, there's still someone that is over you. The tree in the middle of the garden was a reminder of that. That, that you are not God, that there, you, there is someone over you, higher than you, in authority, and you are accountable to that person. And so naturally, that was the one area of creation that humanity was most interested in. As if to say, I appreciate that God gave me all the world to enjoy, but what I really want more than anything in this world is total autonomy total sovereign authority. What I want is for there not to be a God looking over my shoulder, telling me what to do, putting his, you know, imposing his will on me. I want to be the one who does whatever I want to do at any given moment. So they eat from the tree and they are cursed and the entire world is cursed. The entire world is subjected to futility. Futility means uselessness, meaninglessness. An exercise in futility, right, is a, is a thing that you, that's, you're doing it, but there's no point in your, your doing it. Uh, when I was in college, lived in a house, big, huge house, like 100 years old, no air conditioning, basically no heat. Um, and... The, yeah, the way, that, the way that it works in Harrisonburg is, uh, you know, all these landlords buy all these 100-year-old houses. They don't put any money into them. And then they rent them out to college kids who then, in turn, cram like 100 guys into one house, you know, sleeping in the attic, the basement, crawl spaces, cat, you know, you name it, right? So, so the co- all the college guys are trying to get their rent as cheap as they can by cramming all these people into it. And then all the landlords are trying to, you know, maximize their, their revenue by just leaving these old dilapidated houses. And it's just kind of a mutual... Uh, relationship. So, uh, I lived in one of those. There was a light switch in the house that wasn't connected to anything. We didn't know it, but it wasn't connected to anything. And so when we moved in, we spent hours trying to figure out what light this switch controlled. And we went to, we went and bought walkie talkies and we went all around the property, up in the attic, out in the garage, turned it on now, turned it off now, right? Over and over. And, and nope, it's not there. Is it the garbage disposal? Is it we going down to the fuse box with flashlights? All this stuff to figure out what this light... And then finally, like after a, several hours of this, we got the bright idea to just unscrew it. And then it was just, there was no wires. It was just a light switch in the wall with no wires. So those hours that we spent, you know, trying to figure out what light this switch controlled was an exercise in futility. It was pointless, it was useless, it was meaningless. We might as well have not even been doing it because it was a total waste of time. And Paul is saying, when humanity sinned, there's some element of futility, meaninglessness, pointlessness, a waste of time. Now, 
all of creation's existence is in some sense an exercise in futility, right? The thing that that, what we were trying to do was figure out that light switch. We, it wasn't going to happen. And what God created the world to do, which is to, to glorify his name and to testify to the greatness and the beauty of God so that God it becomes more famous throughout the entire universe. The point of why God created the world, it's not doing it. It's not, it's not accomplishing the end for which it was created. I mean, you, like, even in just the first few chapters of Genesis, right? God creates Adam, and he puts Adam in the garden, and he says, your job is to work, the, work it and keep it. So Adam, so Adam had a job. Like, before the fall, Adam had a job. He had a day job. He would go, and he would work. Jobs are good. Working is good. But in Genesis 3, after the fall, God says to Adam, because of your sin, you're going to work now. Work is not going to be easy or fun anymore. It's going to be hard. It's, there's thorns and thistles. It's going to happen by the sweat of your brow. The, the ground is going to work back against you as you're trying, like work was before this fun, beautiful, creative, productive thing. And now it's hard. And you're going to sweat, and, you're, and then you're going, to die, you're going to work and then die. So that's, that's, there's this futility that's introduced into that relationship. Same thing with, with Eve, right? Uh, you know, Eve was the, the mother of all living. God gave her the, the task. God gave Adam and Eve together the task of being fruitful and multiplying. So, so God's original intention for Eve was to give birth to new life, right? You know, God's, God says to Adam, work and keep the garden which is reminiscent of how God worked in the six days of creation and then rested. God says to Eve, be fruitful and, and multiply, right? Bring new life into the world, which is reminiscent of how God had just brought new life into the world. Adam and Eve were kind of given these jobs that were reminiscent of God and who God is and what God does. But just like, uh, you know, suffering and, and heart and difficulty was introduced into Adam's work life, Suffering and difficulty were introduced into Eve, right? He says, now, from now on, child, pregnancy and childbirth are going to be terribly painful. The creation that was originally good was corrupted and marred and subjected to futility. Not willingly, right? For the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Who's that? Who is it that subjected the creation to futility? It was, was God. God was the one who subjected creation to the futility of pain and suffering. It wasn't the world's choice. The world didn't willingly say, I want to be, I want to live in this existence of futility. I want pain and suffering to be introduced into my existence. It wasn't, uh, it didn't do it willingly. It was subjected, it was subjected to it by God. If you ever wonder whether God is actually in control of bad things and suffering and, and evil, or if you ever hear someone say that God is not in control of, of those things, something bad happens to you, and someone says, well, you know, God wishes that didn't happen. God is just as sad about that as, as you are. If God could have, uh, you know, prevented that, he would have, but he couldn't, and so therefore, you know, that's just, this is just the situation. that we're, I've heard people say this before, thinking that they have, somehow gotten God off the hook, right? Like, 
like God was, you know, like we need to acknowledge that, that God is not sovereign over evil and suffering lest we inadvertently find ourselves implying that God is culpable for sin and, and evil. Well, the problem with that, so the problem with saying that God is not sovereign over suffering and evil is twofold. One, you, it might be that you got God off the hook for potentially being culpable for suffering and evil, I suppose. But what you also got God off the hook for is being God, right? And being strong and sovereign and powerful and able to actualize his will. That's part of what it means to be God, is that you are sovereign over all things. So that's one problem with that kind of line of thinking, is that, is that uh, you're, you're stripping God of his omnipotence and his sovereignty. But the second problem with that line of thinking is that it, it doesn't comport with what Paul says here in verse 20. Creation was subjected to the futility of suffering, not willingly, but because of God, the one who subjected it to that futility. And the reason why God subjected the creation to the futility of suffering was in the hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So Paul's not saying suffering doesn't exist. He's not saying suffering is not that bad. Right? Paul's not looking the person who is experiencing chronic health complications or chronic pain and saying suffering's not really that bad. He's not looking the person who just got in a car accident, was hit by a drunk driver, and now their life is altered forever, and saying suffering is not really that bad. He's not looking at the person who, uh, who someone that they love has a, a mental illness and saying suffering is not really that bad. He's not looking at the person who, their spouse or their father or their, or their child, or their grandchild is, is sick and, and dying and saying suffering is not really that bad. Paul is saying suffering is unspeakably difficult and hard and painful. All of that is true, and God is still in control of it. God is not this damsel in distress who is unable to actualize his will and the reality of suffering, the fact that we experience suffering does not call God's sovereignty into question. God is the one who subjected the world to suffering, but he did so specifically uh, with a view to his eventual freeing them from that futility and that suffering, setting them free from bondage and corruption, like for the, for the glory of the children of, of God. God allowed suffering to come into the world, into our existence, knowing that one day God was going to eradicate suffering entirely from the world and from our existence. One day sin would be defeated. God would wipe away every tear. 
death will be no more. There will be no mourning or crying or pain. God subjected the world to futility, knowing that he would one day redeem it from it. But in the meantime, verse 22, in the meantime, it still is hard. (laughs) We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Right, Paul Paul uses strong language to describe what the world is experiencing. Right? He's not trying to trick you into thinking your life is better than it is. He's not trying to, you know, just have a positive attitude. Turn that frown upside down. Right? Be good, like, be happy and think good things and then good things will happen to you. Paul is saying... Things are far worse than you think they are. Suffering, if, right, as bad as you think suffering is, it's probably going to get worse between now and when you die. That's not just my experience. That's a universal reality that all of creation experiences. It groans and aches with pain. Pain that's likened to childbirth. I've been in the room when a woman is giving birth to a child. It's not a walk in the park. It's, it's not for the faint of, of heart. And Paul is saying that severe distress, right? A woman screaming in agony, demanding to be given an epidural. Like that is, right? Paul's picture, right? If Paul were going to illustrate the creation of God with words, it's not a beautiful sunset or a walk on the beach, right? It's, it's uh, a person in intense, debilitating pain. That's the world. So Paul doesn't address the problem of human suffering by acting like it doesn't exist. Christians should not attempt to answer the problem of human suffering by acting like it does not exist. Paul puts all of his cards right on the table. Suffering is real. Suffering is bad. Yes, God is the one who allowed it. God is in charge. God is the one who subjected the creation to the suffering that it's experiencing. If our worldview, if our theology can't say those things along with Paul, then we are ill-prepared for the storms of suffering that are likely going to come our, our way. God allows suffering knowing that God will one day redeem and and eradicate suffering. Verse 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we eagerly await for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So there's the turn, right? Uh, uh, 18 was the, the thesis statement that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's coming. 19 through 22 was, was working that out in a general sense for all of creation. 23 and following is working that out in a specific sense for human beings and for Christians in particular. 
It's not just the trees and the plants and the animals and the birds and the fish that get sick and die and decay. It's not just a general creation issue. It's human beings. We suffer and we ache and we groan too. Which is all the more remarkable given that Paul is talking to Christians, right? Not only Christians, but we who have the first fruits of the Spirit. So if anyone in all of creation were to be exempt from suffering, you'd expect that it would be human beings. Because we have this unique role in creation where we were created in God's image. And we have this inherent dignity that no one else in all of creation has. So if anyone was going to be exempt from suffering, it would be human beings. And then within that group of human beings, if any of them were to be exempt from suffering, it would be Christians. Because they're the ones who have been given the first fruits of the Spirit. The, literally the third member of the Trinity lives inside of us. And so if anyone is, is to expect some sort of preferential treatment... And, and to be exempt from suffering, it would be Christians who trust in Jesus and who are filled with the Holy Spirit. And what does Jesus say to them? John 16, in this world you will have trouble. Matthew 24, you will be handed over to be persecuted and to be put to death. And you will be hated by all of the nations because of me. John 15, the world will hate you and they will persecute you just like they persecuted me. In other words, what Jesus is saying is even you who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even you are going to groan inwardly as you wait eagerly for your adoption as sons, the redemption of your bodies. Suffering is real. Suffering is unavoidable. But suffering does not get the last word. God is the one who gets the last word on suffering, right? Eventually, Jesus is going to come back. He's going to complete and consummate his adoption of his children, and he's going to complete and consummate his redemption of his people. Jesus gets the last word. Suffering does not. Jesus comes back. He destroys all of his enemies, which is not just uh, human beings who have rebelled against him and rejected him. It includes them, but his enemies that, that, that he destroys according to Revelation 20, are Satan and, and even death itself. When, when Jesus returns, he's not just going to put his, if Satan and, and, the people who, you know, and the people who've rejected him in hell. He's going to, in some sense, take death as if it was a physical, tangible thing and cast death into hell. And then he's going to take his people and gather them together. And Revelation 21, this is how uh, Revelation 21 describes the experience of the people who have been reconciled to Jesus. Right? He sees a new heaven and a new earth, a new city, Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. And I heard a loud voice saying, Behold! The dwelling place of God is with man. God will dwell with men, and they will be his people, and he will be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. 
death will be no more. There will be no mourning or crying or pain. Because the former things, the futility that you were subjected to, the former things have passed away. And the one who's seated on the throne says, Behold, I am making all things new. No more pain, no more suffering, no more futility. Everything is being made new. To the thirsty I will give the spring of water of life without payment. There's no temple because the Lord and the Lamb were the temple. There's no sun or moon because the glory of God gives it light and the lamp is the Lamb. Its gates will never be shut. There will be no night there ever. The river of water will flow from the throne of God and water everything. There will be no more curse. And God and the people of God together will reign forever and ever. The glory that is going to be revealed to us is infinitely better than the sufferings of this present time. It's not even close. It's not worth comparing. And for in this hope we were saved. Verse 24. This is the hope for which we were saved. Right? Meaning that if a person has a correct biblical understanding about who Jesus is and what the good news of the gospel is, then he doesn't come to Jesus on the hope that Jesus is going to give him the life that he wants right now. We don't come to Jesus with the expectation that I'm going to be spared from suffering right now. I'm going to have everything that I've ever wanted right here, right now, in this life. That's not the hope that we were saved in. The hope that we were saved in is the redemption, the future tense, in the age to come, redemption of our bodies. We were saved in the hope that one day when Jesus returns, he will bring about the ultimate, final restoration of all things. That's what we're hoping for. Right now we don't have it. Right now we can't see it. And that's why we have to hope for it. Right? Now, uh, hope that is seen is not hope. Who hopes for what he sees? Meaning, if you have something, you don't have to hope for it. You already have it. If you see something right in front of you, you don't have to hope for it or have faith that maybe you'll get it because you can see it, right? It doesn't take any faith or hope for that. But if you, if you don't have it, if you can't see it, right? We as Christians, we hope for and we long for and we anticipate something about our future life in eternity that we don't have right now and we cannot see right now. We hope for it and we wait for it with patience. We as Christians are hoping and waiting with patience for this life that we will experience in the future, this existence that we will experience with God, in the presence of God, totally free from, totally devoid of sin, and, and suffering. We don't have it now. We can't see it now, but we hope for it. And God has called us to suffer now and to remain faithful to him while we suffer now so that eventually in eternity we will receive what we've been waiting for and, and hoping for. 
Eventually, sin will be gone, suffering will be gone, the glory of God will be revealed, and at that moment, the glory of God will be infinitely better than our sin and our suffering is bad. The glory of Christ is infinitely more good than our suffering is bad. So that's our experience. That's the, that's the experience that Paul sketches out and paints and says, if you're a Christian, this is, right, your, your suffering is not all that there is. Your suffering is going to give way to eternal, infinite, incomparable glory behind it. And the reason why we can trust that that's going to be our story for us as Christians is because that's what happened to Jesus. Jesus came to us. Jesus entered into his creation. Jesus suffered. He suffered a terrible death on the cross. He gave his life as a sacrifice of atonement so that God's wrath could be satisfied, so that our sin could be... Jesus suffered more than anyone else has ever suffered ever. And while he was suffering... Jesus recognized that the suffering that he was experiencing was going to give way to and was not even worth comparing to the glory that he would experience for all of eternity in heaven with his Father and with his people. Hebrews chapter 12 says that Jesus endured the cross despising its shame, despising the suffering that it represented He endured the horror of the cross by looking to and meditating on the joy that lay before him. Right? Considering the infinite glory, the incomparable glory that was coming on the other side of it. He endured the cross by recognizing that the temporary suffering that he was experiencing was not even worth comparing to the infinite, eternal glory that was to come. And Jesus calls us to do the exact same thing. To carry our cross, to persevere through suffering by looking to and meditating on the joy that lays before us. By, by recognizing that there is an eternal glory on the other side of our current suffering and that that glory is far greater and far more glorious. So much so that you can't even compare it. So even as we groan, We hope, and we wait with patience, because Jesus is faithful. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would help us to be faithful as we walk through the suffering that you have called us to in this life. We pray that you would help us to be humble and trust in you and trust in your will and your plan for our lives. And we pray specifically, Lord, that you would help us to do that by remembering that there's an eternal glory that is going to be revealed to us that is so great and so glorious that it is not even worth comparing with our current, present sufferings. God, help us to persevere by remembering the joy 
that this life will eventually give way to. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.